I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. In many ways, today's guest is an archetype of a traditional Lloyds managing agency business and the lifeblood of the London market. It's specialist, not generalist. It's not too big, but not too small. It's nimble and agile, but also rarely strays from its chosen areas of expertise. And it's also fiercely independent and supported, but not controlled by its capital backers. Duncan Dale is CEO of Dale Underwriting Partners, a business in its 10th year of operation that is set to write around $400 million in gross premium in 2023, following a one-third preemption in its capacity from 2022. We discuss the recalibration in the market following the 1-1 reinsurance renewals, the opportunities this is throwing up, and how long these opportunities might last for. We look at the firm's expansion plans and the continued merits or otherwise of the London market as a base, the effects of increased inflation on underwriting, and we also dissect Duncan's own personal ambitions for the business he founded. But most importantly, we get under the skin of a very singular London-headquartered underwriting business with a very clear vision of what it wants to do and where it wants to be. Duncan is on excellent form, and I think this podcast proves that these days there's absolutely no such thing as a Lloyd's archetype. Every market participant has a different approach and a very different philosophy and set of appetites, and I think that bodes very well for the health of the London market as a whole. Enjoy the podcast. Duncan, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you, Mark, and welcome to Dale Underwriting. Nice to That's see great. you. Great to be here. For some of the listeners who don't know you that well, why don't you run us through a kind of whistle-stop tour of, of your business? Of course, happy to give you the whistle stop version. Could talk all day about the business, but the whistle stop version is we founded the business in 2014. So we're in our 10th year now. That's gone rather quickly. Key numbers for us for 2023 £330 million of GWP. We increased the stamp capacity from 2022 of £210 million to 280. So it's a one third preemption in there. And the important things about us, for those that don't know us, is that we very much focus on core lines of business. So we're not interested in being highly diversified. We'd rather have depth of expertise in a few areas, and we can talk about those areas. Yeah, and so if someone's wandering up and down Lime Street and you ask them, oh, what does Dale do? What would you like them to say? What I'd like them to say is that we understand what they do. We don't have too many questions of the strategy. What they're here yeah. for. Yeah. So property insurance, property reinsurance, US casualty, healthcare, energy, specialty, which is that wonderful term. For us, it means a contingency book and accident health business. It's an amazing catch-all, isn't it? Because everything's specialists. Indeed. Yeah. And we haven't been very innovative around the title of specialty to cover that, but that's what it means to us. And then the latest edition, which was Marine Treaty. So essentially, we're a PNC insurance, reinsurance business with energy, contingency, A&H on the yep. side of that. So you are expansive. So you've added marine reinsurance. Are you planning on looking at any new classes? And has most of your growth come from just going deeper into your core classes? And how much is from new classes? Firstly, I think the addition of the marine treaty team was very much a known entity to us. And so we weren't approaching that as diversification for the sake of diversification. It was, so these are underwriters that you've known yeah, around the market? Don Peters, our active underwriter, has worked with them for 20 plus years. And it's an adjunct 
to other things that we do in the short tail treaty area. So it's a well known to us, felt that their track record and culture and following would fit well with the business. We do see a lot of different underwriting teams and classes of business. And I think what hopefully will serve us well is to focus on things that we know well and understand and can do in a meaningful way. And whilst that's not all about leadership, we tend to think of that as leadership quality. So there's a couple of areas where we lead a lot of business. Healthcare would be 60% of what we write. Property insurance we lead 30% of what we write there. For us, it's really the value that we add to distribution and to the client base of having depth of expertise whereby we have all of the services that sit behind the underwriting claims department. Claims department's massively important. That's essentially what we're selling, is the ability to settle people's claims when they most need us. But also, I think we want to be creative in terms of the solutions that we can bring to clients and to brokers. And so having that depth of expertise and capability and flexibility, whether it's insurance or reinsurance or whatever structure might make sense or I think that's how we set our stall out. Having third-party capital and a spread capital behind the syndicate also supports that approach of being not focused on diversification for the sake of it or to make the capital model work that bit more efficiently. And so for us, that structure helps us to think about focusing on things that we can do well. Because that third-party capital is looking to you for particular lines, particular expertise. They're not just looking to you to produce some sort of generalist across the board. They want you to beat the market in the areas that you've chosen to compete in, right? Exactly right. I think whilst they are, of course, focused on their return on their capital, yeah. they are diversified in their investment in us. And so they get some diversification credit across what else they do. Yeah. And so the capital ratio on the syndicate on 1729 is not the be-all end-all in their motivation to support us. And I think there's two elements to that. It means that we don't have pressure from a source of capital to grow at the wrong time. And it also means that we don't have pressure to diversify into things that we less understand. You know, as Vijay Dowling puts it, uh, was the, he coined the term uh, diversifying, which is certainly stuck. So in general, in terms of your philosophy, it sounds like you're not going for growth's sake. You don't want to go and take over the world in any sense, but you want to pick your battles pick the classes where you really think you can add value. And so are there any classes that you'd always rule out that you'd say, actually, we'd probably never go into that? I think additional points on the classes we're in, they're big classes of business for Lloyd's. So 80% of the premium that comes into Lloyd's is in classes of business that we're in. And so we don't need to diversify to gain scale if we've got the right expertise and offering of products and people and services. Right. So it's really quite a deep pond is what you're saying. Deep pond which at the moment has a hopper full of opportunities, I would say. I think probably the one obvious area that we get asked about the most at the moment is cyber and what capacity we would have for cyber. Potentially, we might do something on the reinsurance side at some point in the future. I think our concern is always about aggregation of risk and specific to cyber exposures. Do we fully understand how those losses might materialise across industries, across sectors, across a broader insurance base. And so I'm not in any way criticising those people that do write that book of business. It's just not something we focus on and feel comfortable to expose our capital to. It's easy to get yourself uncomfortable with it, isn't it? Because obviously it's naturally something that's insuring systems and by definition, 
potentially systemic. So yeah, fair enough on that side. But although it does seem to be, we've had some developments at the reinsurance end of cyber in the last few months, actually. So it seems that a lot of people with capital are becoming quite a lot more comfortable with the least they can understand what the aggregation is and what their absolute worst downside might be to that capital. Not feel like it's some sort of opportunity to unlimitedly lose all your money a hundred times over or a million times over. Yeah. Balance of income to limit is a good thing there, to our mind. Or at least it could be defined in a more finite way as well, which is also really important because you don't want to end up becoming each and every when you're talking about something digital. Yeah. If you're one online, uh, (laughs) that's a tough place to be. Time for an ad break. We'll get back to the podcast after this very brief message. So much has changed in the last few years, not least in Bolt Associates' world of recruiting actuaries and insurance. There is more and more need for actuaries and cap modellers. Demand is outstripping supply. But this is not the first time we've seen this. Bolt Associates has operated in this market for over 20 years. We know what attracts candidates to roles and what matters in this hybrid working world. We're having conversations with firms all needing actuaries, be they syndicates, MGAs, brokers, they need pricing actuaries, heads of capital, reserving specialists. Plus the larger players looking at restructures are asking us to find group roles, such as CRO, chief actuary, and some CFOs. The actuarial skill set really does now reach all levels of the board. In 2022, several senior actuaries took the CEO role, with more to come in 2023, so watch this space. And this is where the Bolt Associates Network comes into play. We can build your actuarial function, and also draw on our established network to find those actuaries who have skills not only with numbers, but with leadership, people and specific insurance knowledge. 2023 has many exciting events for Bolt Associates coming up, keeping the market linked up, engaged and hopefully having a bit of fun. We're good at what we do because we enjoy what we do. So if you want us to find your elusive actuary, fresh new juniors or hear which firms are looking after their staff, then do get in touch. We're on Lime Street, so we're pretty easy to find, unlike that reinsurance pricing actuary you're currently struggling to hire. Let's speak soon. Get in touch at bolton-associates.co.uk. One other stop on your whistle stop that we haven't spoken about, and something that when I look at your website and look at some of the news announcements, is Mm -hmm. the Dale Jewell MGU. Run me through that, how that works. Because it's quite a big part of your GWP, isn't it? it? It's become big, so £100 million uh, in its second year, effectively. That's pretty substantial. So thinking behind DDML, as we refer to it, that's a joint venture between us and Dual. So we own, jointly own a a company between the the entities, brings the huge level of abilities of Dual in terms of running an MGU and brings capacity behind our underwriting teams. And so the... Strategy. You asked about strategy for doing it is several areas, I would say. It's a fee business for us. And so a lot of discussion in the press around balance sheet versus fee business. Certainly in this last decade, the balance sheet business haven't been valued quite so well and the, uh, the fee business has been valued much better. Who knows now if interest rates flip the other way, maybe everything will slowly regress to whatever the meme was before. I think they might actually. <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, I think what we were interested in doing was developing a fee business that was complementary to our skill sets and, and what we do. And that wasn't about going out and building an MGU, it was... So your partner, they've already done this. They've been doing this for 25 years, actually. The largest Jewel. in the world at it. So, yes. <laughs> so they're good at that. And so rather than us go out and build something like that, we felt that there was great opportunity to partner with them. They approached us, which and is bringing different kind of paper that you couldn't get through the Lloyd's systems. Because obviously, a Lloyd's managing agent 
is also, I mean, it, it is another form of agency. It's another mm. form of MGA, MGU, effectively, isn't it? What does this bring you that you couldn't do within the Lloyd structure? Arguably, we could grow the syndicate more significantly and write all of the business that we write through the MGU on the syndicate. But where we see the advantage, and if you think around historically, particularly at very strong points in the market, and I think we're at a pretty strong point in the market, you would see increased quota share capacity coming in behind Lloyd syndicates. And because of the economics of doing that and the accounting of doing that these days, it's less efficient for us to do it that way. And so essentially the way it works, and I'll talk about some of the other strategies on it in a moment, but essentially the way it works is that we underwrite on behalf of 1729, but the underwriters, either through consortium arrangements or various types of binding authority arrangements with capacity that's inside Lloyd's as well as outside of Lloyd's, will offer additional lines on the placement that we see. So there's always a strong alignment of interest between what we do on the syndicate with our capacity providers that sit alongside us. So some of those are offering different paper to Lloyd's, obviously, and so there are sometimes some licensing restrictions or there might be some appetite restrictions. So it's not necessarily exactly a mirror image, but also there are other arrangements which work as consortia that are taking a fixed percentage of every piece of business that we write that's within subject. Two very important points for the syndicate are that It benefits the syndicate in two very simple ways. We offset some of the expense of our underwriting teams to that vehicle. So there is expense saving that flows to the capital providers of the syndicate. But also it gives our underwriters a bigger line size to deploy. And that gives them a better presence in the market. And again, more value, if you like, to the distribution and client base. So we still think of you as a classic Lloyd's business. It's just that there are these additional arrangements that sound like they're more technical than anything else, really. It's just a different way of bringing in capacity. There are different ways of bringing in capacity that might have historically been reinsurance. Yeah. Or they might have been capital. But these are sitting alongside us taking risk, effectively. Yes, in the end. And the underwriter is still doing the same job. Underwriters exactly doing the same job. And to some extent, we're using that asset of underwriters who are seeing the business, got access to the broker base and and the relationships for others that don't have that access. That makes plenty of sense. I might come up with loads of other questions later on, but it sounds like it makes a lot of sense. It's just the way of the world these days. There are so many different channels down which capital seems to be able to come these days that it's hard to keep up. (laughs) It is, and, and it does allow those partners of ours to be very focused on what they want to we could do it support, one way or another. you know so they might be very focused on backing the property insurance team difficult in a lloyd's environment to so, sorry, focus on one only. class yeah right so there's a dynamic there i think that we see that there's interest from a capital standpoint to be 20 30 years ago when you had three or four hundred syndicates and they were more single class they syndicates. They were much more focused, weren't they? I suppose everyone knew what they were getting if they had a line on the syndicate. It was kind of pretty clear what they did. Yeah. Now they have a blend. And it's true of 1729. much that, bigger. I mean, a 300 million syndicate 20 years ago would have been pretty huge. Yeah. Big syndicate in Lloyd's. And these yeah. days it's not. No. By any means. No, absolutely. So we've had a very interesting 1-1 renewal season. The reinsurance world finally fell into line with everybody else. I mean, we'd had hardening in the insurance market in different segments of the specialty insurance market for three or four, five years even. And reinsurance fell into line. 
you're a reinsurer as well as an insurer. You buy reinsurance and you sell reinsurance. Is this new environment where reinsurance has really reset in quite a significant way? How's that changing your own appetites and, and the way that you're going to allocate your own capital to your business? Because presumably, on the buying side, you've probably been forced by the reinsurance market to retain more. But of course, on the selling side, you must be very, very happy in trying to write more, one presumes, at far better terms and conditions than premium. I think we've been pretty defensive around the reinsurance we sell over recent years, both on the property and the casualty side. And our casualty reinsurance is US domiciled. And the vast majority of our property reinsurance is too. And so I would say in recent years, we've been quite defensive over that. We've shrunk exposures, peak cat exposure. We haven't felt on the reinsurance side that the adequacy is, has yeah, been there in the, in the same way as you see that the open market, particularly insurance book, has developed over the last five, six years of double digit rate increases. It's got itself to the point where it's soaking up above average cat activity, if we can put it that way. The reinsurance book hadn't got itself to that level. And I think also from our interactions with capital, we see that historically the expectation, as far as the reinsurance book was concerned, that if they have a big loss, they're going to make it back pretty quickly. The market's going to change. And, and what you had is, is it going to change? Because we've had some big losses. and Just had, had downside. We never seem to get the sunny uplands, did we? Yeah, until now. Yeah. Until now. And so I, I think we can say it's much overdue, but it, you know, I think we saw a broad, disciplined approach towards renewal at 1st of January. To answer your question, I think as far as we're concerned, net appetite will probably be pretty similar to plan, actually, across the lines of business that we do. Everything's better than we planned for. You're not going to go to capital advisors and say, right, I need extra bags of capital this year because I'm really going to go for it. it sounds like you're just going to be able to write a better quality book of business, but with the same capital. I would say it's not a 12-month opportunity. I would hope it's going to last longer than that. And I think it's great to see the changes that we saw at 1st of January. It's a shame that they all had to come in one go. That's probably pretty difficult for the client base to, it it? <laughs> to budget for that. But actually, I think what we'll see is hopefully that puts the market in a better stead. It's an area that we've wanted to be in since we started the business. We still want to be in it, but it needs to be priced at a level that's sustainable with the loss activity that's coming through. And presumably now we've had this reset, do you feel much more comfortable that that is now at a sustainable price level? I think it's a big step towards it. We've all got to see what loss activity comes through. And given the nature of that area of the business, the fortunes are switching somewhat on very few loss events as to whether they make landfall or not. But I think what you want to see is that the increased level of activity is priced for and that there's a sensible margin on top. The erosion of earnings are caused by activity that goes beyond what we've seen in the last five or six years. So you're not getting a rush of blood. And also looking forwards to the mid-year renewals based on what our expense at 1.1 was, do you think we're going to have a continued momentum for those mid-year renewals to catch up with what's happened at 1.1? I'd be surprised if we didn't. I mean, I can't see why the sort of broad scope of discipline around needing significant improvement, and for all of the reasons that everyone is aware of, of why that's necessary, I don't see that reversing before 1.7. Florida is its own market, and, and there's others in our organisation be much better to talk about the intricacies of that and the legislative changes there and what those mean. But it would be pretty surprising to see a reversal from the improved 
pricing adequacy. So it doesn't seem like a huge wave of capital has suddenly come in either. So it, obviously nothing's come in to destabilise what's already happened, unless it might drip in over time. Yeah, And of course, it will drip in, as one hopes for everybody, increased retained profits. Yeah, indeed. And, and it's difficult to know how much capital is going to come in. What are the various factors around that? Yeah, certainly in our experience, they were very focused. When you look at the blend of exposures across the syndicate, the one that really mattered as far as our capital base was concerned was the CatXL account. And so does that take one good renewal to change everyone's mind? I, I don't think so. I don't think we were alone in seeing that in terms of awareness from capital as to whether the market's appropriately pricing for the impacts of climate change and other activity that we've seen on, on the account. Yes, so it sounds like, yes, we're going to be gingerly stepping along rather than everyone suddenly jumping in again. <laughs> Who knows? I think from our perspective, it's something we want to be in. We want to have a sustainable book of that business and feel that we've invested a lot in trying to get that right. And if you go back five or six years on the property insurance portfolio, it's in a fairly similar position to the reinsurance portfolio. Talking about open market property was yeah. in difficult times, you know, and a lot of competitors, too much capacity. The treaties were hoovering everything up, one, one presumes, and there was just nothing left. Yeah. And so we were in a pretty defensive mode on that. We've grown that strongly over better years. You know, we've had 80-90% rate increase on that portfolio over the last five years or so. And that's got it to a point where a Hurricane Ian can come along and we're not immediately changing loss ratio picks. You know? yeah. So yeah. That's good. Well, in fact, brings me on to my next question. Obviously, we've had this recess in reinsurance that has increased net retentions around the world and it's unbundled some covers. Some things now have to stand on their own. You've alluded to this already that in DNF, direct and facultative on the property side, presumably things are set fair and they're likely to be set even fairer coming into this year if everyone's double their net retention, for example. Presumably that's going to increase demand for FAC. Well, I'll just, I'll just ask that. I mean, it sounds like it should do. Yeah, I think we were thinking latter part of last year that the opportunities were starting. It's already been good and it's going to get better. Yeah. And so has it kicked on? Yes. I mean, I think the renewal retention that we saw on our portfolio was higher than we normally see. Rates continue to go up. New business continue to come in. So, so you haven't scared everyone off? <laughs> it hasn't scared everyone off, no. And we were thinking that was going to start peaking and, and coming to an end. And probably Hurricane Ian, reinsurance renewals, cost of living crisis, you know, inflation, all of those, you know, cost of capital, cost of reinsurance, all of those things conspiring to say, well, that's probably going to need to continue. Obviously, it's not just property. Where else are you seeing the displacement from the market changes? Because it tends to open up opportunities because you're quite a nimble business. You can see these changes and you can react to them. So anywhere else apart from sort of DNF where, where there are obvious opportunities being opened up because of the treaty renewals? Probably less so directly from the treaty renewals in the areas where we're comfortable. Yeah. And in casualty, is there any displacement? Has it made, for example, by converse, has it made casualty more attractive and therefore more competitive? I don't think so. I mean, that was yeah. the fear that people would pivot away from We've been waiting for casualty reinsurance to look better. We've kept in touch with the client base and we might sell certain covers to them, but their core covers are perhaps not where we want them to be from a pricing perspective. So those have been stepping up. I think 
part of the fear that we heard was that as people pivoted away from cat reinsurance, they'd write more casualty reinsurance. And I don't think we've really seen that. Not an easy adjunct to do that. And so to answer your question, I think over recent years, we've seen more opportunity on pockets of insurance business that have been displaced where the Lloyd's market has, has worked as the Lloyd's market, to my mind, should. You know, when the locals don't want it or they've got too much of it or they it's can't become a treat it, exclusion, for example, whatever. Yeah. Is there an approach to writing it that gives the client a product that they want to buy? So I think we've seen pockets of that. We're not involved in aviation going forward. And, and so the disconnects that you're seeing on unbundling of, yeah, uh, kind of, of those coverages are not things that we know enough about, I would say, and probably not areas of opportunity for us specifically. So you wouldn't be tempted to have a small line on some consortium or something, if so, if you really trusted the leaders? I wouldn't say never, because why would we? You know, clearly there's planning involved in doing those things. But yeah, we're an underwriting business, but it's important that we stick to what we know and understand, really. That's a good answer. You're a London business. Do you think London's been doing well at this time? You know, we'd say anecdotally that maybe five years ago, it was a worry very much abroad in London that it was becoming less relevant, losing market share. Everyone in London's always worrying about London, whereas they probably shouldn't have worried. As the market sort of reasserts itself as being, not to say the market of last resort, but certainly a market of constancy that's always there when other markets are not necessarily stepping up. I think we should worry about it, not because I'm negative about it, but because I care greatly about it. It's vital to our business, and I think there's no room for complacency. Where we've seen pockets of complacency potentially in the past, I think other markets have worked out how to access the risk and underwrite the risk. Now, they may not have liked the results on what they did, but they've managed to upset the model, if you like. And so I certainly care passionately that we as a market are meeting with clients, meeting with brokers, meeting with loss adjusters, meeting with lawyers that are engaged in whatever the issues are. I think it's difficult one to measure relevance because if in the softest part of the cycle, Lloyd's has less of the business. Well, that's actually good, isn't it? I'd view that as good. Are they ready and tooled up and ready to take the upside? That's a fair challenge, I would say. And so... If there's an agreement that we're in a better market, are we doing what we need to do in that marketplace to make sure that we're attracting clients in and that we're putting people in front of them that are valued for something other than just the capacity that they bring to the table? And that's the best way of staying relevant, isn't it? Being the person who knows the most about that class of business and everyone's got to come and ask you what you think. We've seen, yeah, not universally, but I think we've always seen a value in meeting clients, whether we write them or not, actually. And many of the clients that we've had long relationships with, there have been times where we've written their programs and times where we haven't written their programs and everyone understands that. If they know why you've come off, they also know why you might come back on again. Indeed. Yeah. And if they value you as a partner, then to my mind, you can never guarantee it, but the door is likely to be open. So it sounds like you're very much going to be a London business. Is that going to be forevermore? There are different wholesale insurance and reinsurance hubs around the world, and they're open to you. So could we see Dale becoming more of a global business? Over the medium term, I think our ambitions will be best served focusing on London. To be a medium-sized business in the lines of business that we're in. We can have a relatively small infrastructure that sits behind that, an attractive expense ratio, even though we're at the smaller end of syndicates that operate in the market. Yeah. The expense ratio is below the average, and that will 
continue to improve, hopefully, as, as time goes on. So we're very wary of building expensive infrastructure. Could we do something in a market like Bermuda? Yes, I think so, because there's a lot of commonality of the types of business that are done. We've seen that done very successfully from London in the past, and, and certainly Bermuda has attracted some fantastic talent to the island that is always a joy to witness, I, I think, in going there. That's a possibility. Down the track, yeah. I mean, would we look to plant flags around the world to get closer to local distribution? I don't think so. That's not in our plans. It can be a very expensive operation to suddenly have to build a lot of scale to pay for it, and it might not necessarily lead you to the right place. Yeah. Part of the thought around the structure that we have is about management stretch and about knowing what's going on and about being nimble in each class and having an owner-managed business where every element of that can be meaningful to the bottom line results of the business. And that's not without ambition. You know, the ambition has always been to do this, to create a high-quality underwriting business with high-quality capital backing it. And we don't feel that we need to be in 15 different offices to do that. And let's face it, it's hard enough to do that. It is hard to do that, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. Talking about difficulties that have been thrown in our path by the gods in the last year, and probably if we'd been doing this interview 18 months ago, uh, inflation was probably still within most central banks' target rates. And of course now, you know, we've had, we hope it's a spike, but it's been nearly a year of double-digit inflation around the world. As a casualty guy, does that give you absolute nightmares? I wouldn't say absolute nightmares. I mean, I think inflation has been something that we've wrestled with for 20 or so years. When you think about inflation, it's an annual phenomenon. And we don't often see deflation. So the costs of claims over time are bound to go up. And if you're not aware of that in your pricing of your product, then, then, it's, not live very long. then it's not going to work. So I think if you're kidding yourself about the level of inflation that might be in place over the period of time that you might be settling claims, then that will come home to roost. And so the approach has been to try and be conservative in that and look beyond the next couple of years. And so does that mean that excess inflation is not meaningful? Of course, it's meaningful. There are lots of factors here, a cost of living crisis or an increase in energy bills or an increase in goods and materials doesn't necessarily change the value of a casualty claim. Other types of inflation, healthcare costs, wages, wages might be a consequence of what we're seeing in the global economic markets. But those sorts of things should be considered, to my mind, when looking at the level of inflation. Policy limits. Are you inflating beyond your policy limits? Are you a primary player or an excess player? So I think for us as a business, certainly we're embedding a higher level of inflation into our casualty and healthcare pricing. Not all of that's driven by cost of living crisis. It's driven by cost of drugs, cost of wages, cost of healthcare bills, cost of an emboldened plaintiff's bar winning more often. Yeah. yeah. So many factors. Do we see much in the data? I don't think we do on the casualty side. You don't have to be an economic forecaster. You just have to see what's in front of you and make sure you're pricing for what is happening today. And if inflation's 12%, then unless you get 12%, you're giving a price discount. Exactly right. And for many years, if you look at healthcare as an example, we're pricing with 4 or 5% annual inflation. Because in it's there. been riding way above CPI, that type of inflation, hasn't it? Yeah. But actually, when you look at the claims data, it's been about 1% over a 10-year period. Yeah. So it's about 
having a mindset to best you can stay ahead of it and understand which of your exposures are going to be more vulnerable to changes in inflation. If you're an excess player, which we are at times, you're bound to be more vulnerable to inflation. As that underlying is eroded quickly. Yeah. Do you want more margin as an excess player than you do as a primary player where it's less of a factor? You should do. Right. I think where we have seen it is more on the short tail accounts, transportation, for example, FTC, MTC type business where, very simply, the, the cost of repair and replacing vehicles is more expensive than it was two years ago. So are you able to price for that? Yes, you are. It's priced on the values. So what that's was the gone abbreviation up. just use? FTC, MTC. So what does it stand for? MTC, motor truck cargo. Ah. And physical damage, FTC, fire, theft and collision. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. It's just I'm on a mission permanently to de-abbreviate so, uh, the insurance industry. Auto physical damage or FTC, we view <laughs> right, as the same. Okay. Duncan, you mentioned about your ambition to build a successful business, a quality business, perhaps not necessarily the biggest business in the world, but it's pretty big already, actually. But in a high quality franchise, what sort of entrepreneur are you? I always ask this of people who are building their own business. Are you the sort of person who, you know, you want to have that Dale above the door forever and the sort of thing that you can leave this business to your grandchildren and say, you know, I built this? Or are you the sort of person who builds something with an end goal in mind? So, well, actually, when it gets to this size, you know, then I might be open to someone taking it off my hands and going and buying a big yacht or something. I think we ended up with Dale over the door because I'm not very inventive as far as company names are concerned. And so spent six months or so looking at street signs and all sorts of things and, and couldn't find anything. So we ended up defaulting to this, but not for a view of in terms of what the legacy might look like, actually. But I think the whole idea of building this was to test ourselves to go out and attract capital behind a plan to build a quality underwriting business. And we've had tremendous support for that from brokers, from clients, from very good quality capital. We've got a lovely spread of capital behind the syndicate. And we're very largely an owner-managed business. So don't have any press you haven't got any sort of some private equity backer who's looking to exit at some point who's we, sort of we don't have door. private equity at no, this point you've got that luxury of you don't have a clock ticking or anybody anything sort of hanging over your head no and i think one of the big things that we haven't mentioned today is that we achieved the managing agency last year and so in establishing that platform our strategy really is to spend a period of time making sure that we're doing all the right things as far as that's concerned but then we'll have a platform where we can not just the MGU, but the underwriting business can build value. And there will be alternative uses for that platform into the future. And will we need additional capital to do that? Probably. Pretty much do in whatever you do. Will that all come from existing capital providers or those that are happy to coexist with other capital providers? hope so. But we'll need to look at that and look at what's in the best interest of the business. It's not a sale, more just, you know, if you need new capital to continue growing, it's because you want to continue growing. Because we it, think there's good fuel. opportunities to use it. And I think, of course, yeah, there's pros and cons of having a single parent capital provider versus multiple. I'm sure there are pros and cons of both models. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of the cons of our model is that every year we don't know whether it's going to be replenished in exactly the same proportions or everyone's going to take up the preemption. We stretched it a little bit this year, I would say, in, in a one-third preemption. It's probably one of the stronger ones. But we got there. Fantastic support. 
but things change and equally there are values of being in a big group with a big parent that can write a big check or approach it in different ways so i think if you talk about do i have a exit date and growth ambition no it doesn't sound like you do no the strategy is to build a quality business and hopefully that lasts uh, longer you, you than me finished yet is what you, it, i no. haven't finished yet no Actually, it's been interesting. Another thing about London during this market hardening phase, and it has been difficult for people to raise capital, is that the London Stock Exchange has shown it's still got an appetite. Perhaps it's nostalgic for the days when it used to have 15 or 20 integrated Lloyd's vehicle businesses to invest in. There used to be loads. Of course, now we're really down to the fingers of one hand now, but with one incumbent going to the market and getting substantial capital. Do you think that's a possibility to be a public company? It seems that there's very much a market out there for a public company that's a Lloyd's business. Had some experience of that in the past, and I think it's not on our horizon for the next few years. Could, Could you be, be too small, I suppose? I think we're too small. I think the reporting requirements and the other things that go with it are probably not for us. If we look at the past experience, obviously not the Amlins, Beasleys and Hiscoxes of the world, but certainly some of the other smaller ones, it did seem to weigh on them rather heavily eventually, didn't it? And, and they did get picked off. Yeah. It doesn't matter where your capital comes from. You've got a variety of views of what that capital was trying to achieve. And, and I think some will be happy that you are a cyclical business that's growing when the time's right and shrinking when the time's right, but some will not. Part of my job now is making sure that we've got the capital support that reflects the business that we want to operate. Yeah, because presumably I mean, it's the sort of investors you have now understand the nature of the business intimately, and obviously it's not a liquid investment, so they understand that it's a commitment on both sides. They do, they really do. And I, and I think we've taken steps over recent years. Trade reinsurance was not part of our capital stack historically, so we had good reinsurance relationships, but, yeah. but they weren't part of the capital. And I think that adds a really good dynamic, actually, to the overall support for the business. So, yeah, that's been a good development for us. Well, Duncan, I really, really enjoyed our conversation. I think looking at my list of questions, I think we've touched on all of the topics and it's been a really wide-ranging discussion. So I don't know if you've got anything else to add before we go. Perhaps one thing. We're very proud to be in the Lloyds market and we'd like to see that the Lloyds market is on the front foot and supportive of the businesses in the market. And so it's been an absolute joy having you come and visit us. Come back and see us anytime. I certainly shall. We'll pick up some time as you continue to grow and make the most of this intriguing market. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at 
www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.